Welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman, and our guest today is Waverly Willis. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. During the first season of the Up To podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me, and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Welcome back to the Up To Podcast. Here's your host, Adam Kaufman. Our guest today has likely overcome more challenges than anyone we've previously had on the Up To Podcast. You're about to hear a story of an inspirational and courageous man with close to unmatched resilience. Waverly Willis is the owner of Urban Cuts, a barber shop which has on multiple occasions been named the best barber shop in Cleveland. Waverly is also the founder of the Urban Barber Association, which is a network of barber shops and salons which use their businesses as a vehicle to enlighten and empower their communities with important programs like job training for felons who re-enter the marketplace, child literacy programs, and even blood pressure screenings at the barber shop. Our guest today is also the chairman of the Ohio Barber and Beauty Alliance and is a constant innovator and catalyst bringing more opportunities for those in and around the barber business. Last year, our guest garnered international attention for becoming, get this, the first barber in the world to accept cryptocurrency as a form of payment and thus earning the name, the Bitcoin Barber. Our guest today is a true trendsetter, creating new norms for his industry and building so many bridges between his clients, his community and society at large. Waverly has accomplished all of this most impressively, having overcome drug and alcohol addiction, chronic homelessness, morbid obesity, and even cancer. Just remarkable. He is a husband, a father, a stepfather, a mentor to many, and an inspiration to everyone fortunate enough to be in his orbit. Waverly Willis, welcome to the podcast. Wow. I didn't... I didn't know. I'm like, who is this guy he's talking about? It's you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Nice to see you again, Adam. What have you been up to? Uh, well, been busy, busy, busy coming out of the quarantine. You know, quite naturally, I, you got the barbershop, so it exploded. So my team and I were busy fixing a lot Please of Please define haircuts. exploded. Like busyness? Yes. Not exploded, because we've also had some fires lately. <laughs> no, and... no, no. Exploding with, with business. Good. Yes. So a, a good explosion. Okay. Yeah, you know, fixing a lot of 
outgrown hair and a lot of really bad wife haircuts. Mm. Yeah, I'm, that's true. Everyone around <laughs> me, not me, but everyone around me was dealing with their kids or their spouses cutting their hair. <laughs> yeah, so um, that was fun. That was fun. And, uh, you know, starting to even out now. We're kind of uh, concerned. I'm not going to say worried, but we're kind of concerned because the numbers are going back up. And, you know, I think people are starting to kind of fall back now. Um, I'm seeing that in the business, and I'm just talking to other business owners a lot of them are really afraid that we might shut down again, man. Mm. Well, I want to get into what it's like to have a retail business during a pandemic in a little bit. But normally I wouldn't um, ask our guests to do this, but your background is so unique. Could you just do like a Waverly 101 and your story a little bit? Could we spend a few minutes just sure your story sure, sure. maybe from, you know, your elementary or high school years and then into college and soon after that? Okay. I grew up in East Cleveland, Ohio, went to Shaw High School. I was a good student. You know, I, I um, made made pretty good grades, but I lived a dual life. You know, I, I, was, a, I was a great athlete in, in high school. I was an All-American in high school football. An All-American. Running back? No, outside linebacker. Outside linebacker. Yeah, okay. outside linebacker. Mm-hmm. Defensively and outside linebacker. A Lawrence Taylor type. Exactly. And uh, I also went downstate for wrestling, you know, so, but I lived, lived the dual life. I was, again, just a typical young kid from the ghetto, uh, single parent household. Mom couldn't afford everything, you know, and um, so I was selling crack, you know, on the side, you know. I, in I, high school. In high school, yeah. I mean, it it was just what we all did. Uh, ended up getting a football scholarship to college. You know, I, I was still selling crack while I was in college, too, mm. playing college football on, on a football scholarship. Alcoholism uh, runs in my family, you know, um, on my father's side. You and I have that in common, I think I've told you before, my, my father as well. Exactly. And um, I really didn't drink a whole lot in high school, just, you know, at a party or something like that. But when I went to college is when my drinking career started. And, you know, like any addiction, you don't know you're addicted until right. after you're addicted. You mm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I quickly became an alcoholic, you know. Now that I look back at it, I wouldn't say it back then. But, yeah, I, I quickly became an alcoholic. And um, I still selling the crack, still playing football, and eventually leading to me dropping out of college, just becoming a full-time drug dealer pretty much. Mm. And I used to get curious as to why are these people bringing me their mother's wedding ring from three generations Mm. and the titles to their cars. I know now addiction, you want more, 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 more. So you not only sold something like that, you actually uh, used it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I became the drug addict, you know. When you were in high school and the colleges were recruiting you for playing Division I football, did they look into things like that back then? I believe they do now, but... Was it pretty easy to hide this dual life, as you call it? Or they didn't care? Or did they turn a, turn a blind eye, so to speak? I, I'm sure they care, but on paper, I had all the stats in, in football, and on paper, I was an honor and mirror role student. I didn't miss school. I was, a attitude-wise, I was great with my teachers. Everybody loved me. So they had nothing to suspect? No, it was nothing to suspect. There was no no red flags to make them dig into it. Mm. You know, I did your mother know? Do you think? Um, actually, I don't. I don't think she did. 
I mean, my friends were respectful friends. We were all doing it, but we played we played the role really well. This was the dual life. This was the dual life, exactly. So you're in college, and in the fall of your freshman year, is that when you immediately had problems? That's when the drinking began, you know, and then the partying and the chasing the girls and all of that stuff. So you you're know? like 19 at this point. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's more of a demanding schedule in college. It's, right. It's, it's a bigger league. The coaches are on you, you know, and then you don't have mom to say, get up. Get up. Yeah, get in, up, your independence, right? Yeah, you know. And so if I don't have mom there to say, get up, get up, get up. And, you know, I, I came home. Maybe the presence of my mother made me come home at night and not drink when I was out and about. Yeah, a little accountability, even though she didn't know. Yeah, but mom wasn't there. So now I can drink all night. I don't have to go back to my dorm room, you know. Mm. And so now you got to be at a class at 7 in the morning, three days out the week. And so things started going downhill from there because I didn't have the structure of home, mm. you know? So you, how quickly were you out of school? First year, first semester, uh, second semester? It was about two years. Okay, so you can— I, I haggled and struggled and bumped my head for two years until I just called it quits. And uh, like the third year, I paid for my tuition out of pocket. With drug money? Yeah, I literally walked off the football field and, and paid— cash for my for my tuition which was a mistake because I ended up dropping out of school anyway you mm. know mm-hmm. so you leave school do you go back home with your mother or did you start living somewhere else I, I went to Kent State so I still lived in Kent Ohio and, okay. and I was a drug dealer you know and I was an alcoholic and a drug dealer and a party animal mm. and uh, you know the number one cardinal rule in the world of drug dealing is don't get high on your own supply <laughs> And that's what I did. And so the drug dealer, the high and mighty drug dealer, soon became a drug addict and alcoholic to the point that I did end up moving back home um, with my mom, you know, and I was a full-blown alcoholic and, and, mm. and addict. My mom was sick, so I used that as an excuse. So it was camouflaged under this, my mom is sick right, right, situation. Right, she has COPD, so... Mm. I was went home to take care of my mom, but really I didn't have anywhere to go. And you continued dealing at that point? No, at that point I was an addict. So okay. it's nothing to deal. I'm just trying to get high at that point. <sighs> you know, I, I slept in my mom's basement to the point that finally my, my mom passed away and I, I was homeless for a while. I stayed in one of my god brothers, his basement with his dog, you know, he had a bunch of kids and I'm grateful that he opened his doors to me. And during that time, I, I, I slept on the streets. And when I, when I say sleeping on the streets for long periods of time, I don't mean I was couch surfing on friends and family's houses because um, I didn't burn bridges. I just didn't show up. People literally thought I had died or went to prison. Mm. Because I was I was in the streets, and, you know, I slept on 18th and Superior, where you go down in the wintertime, you see the the steam coming up. Yeah, that was the warm place to yeah, lay that, down. That was the warm place. We put our box on top of that, mm. on top of the vent, and a box on top of us to try to trap that steam in. I was the guy in front of the Greyhound station picking up cigarette butts off the ground. I was the guy downtown with the cup in his hand at the gas station, you know, asking, can I pump your gas for a dollar? Mm. You know, I would, would people say yes? Um, was most, there sympathy most, or they most, would try to ignore you? Or? 
Uh, most of the time they would say no, you mm-hmm. know, but, you know, you play the the, the the numbers game. You know, you ask 10 people, two people will say yeah. Okay. Throughout that whole time, though, everything was gone at them. But I, I kept my, my clippers and liners, and I was probably the most well-groomed dope fiend that you had ever seen. <laughs> and people didn't know it at those times. Some of the bus stops had outlets in them. And I would, when a person would say, hey, man, that's a really nice goatee or a beard you got. And I, you know, I pull out my clippers. I can take care of you right now. You Isn't know? that interesting? For it's two, like you were born to be right, a barber no right, matter what. Right, exactly. So I would, I was trimming people up at the bus stop inside, inside of the Greyhound station, inside of the RTA station in East Cleveland or over here on um, Lorraine, off of Lorraine. How long of a period of time was this phase of your life where you're homeless, giving people free or inexpensive goatee trims, looking for food and cigarette butts. How are we talking weeks or months or that was like ninety nine through oh four. That was five years. Yeah, yeah. I was wow. I was out there in the in the wilderness for five years, man. Was there a low point, my father going through alcoholism and then Recovering from it, um, I learned a lot about low points and people having different rock bottoms. Was there one moment that really you now look back on as your rock bottom that led to your effort to try to get better? Well, I had lucked up and found some financial aid to go to barber college, Hmm. but I was still a full-blown addict. I literally used to sleep in the bus stop down the street from my barber college, you know, and I was every day we had to wear khakis and a blue shirt um, and a tie was optional. And I was wrinkled and I was always smelling like yesterday's alcohol, (laughs) weed, tobacco, whatever. And it was one guy, he was my first sponsor. His name was Odie Burton and he was watching me. Mm. And we go out back and we would smoke at the time I smoked you know, he was an alcoholic, so he, he would call me on it. He said, man, you should go to these these meetings I'm going to. And I used to be like, no, nah, I'm not going to no meetings. And uh, So he was a recovering alcoholic at that he, point when he you met a, him? Yeah. Yes, he was in treatment. And um, I had got myself in a jam. I was in the projects, and I had his phone number. And I the way I used to get my crack, I was always a large guy. So I used to basically mug or manhandle the young crack dealers, the 13, 14-year-olds, take Mm. their drugs. And I was inside of a project apartment, and the lady whose apartment was, she came in and she said, I don't know what you just did or or who you hurt to get these drugs, but it is carloads of people with guns, and and they described you, and they they are going to kill you. You got to get out of here. Mm. So I called my friend. Because you didn't have a firearm or a group that protected you or anything. You were solo. Yeah. So I called my friend from Barber College who was in recovery, and he told me I can't come in there, but when I call you back, come running out. And um, he called me back in about 15 minutes. He said, come out there right now. And I came out. I saw the guys that were looking for me. I dove in his backseat, and he took me to Wyhaven. And, you know, I, I would have been killed that day. The Wyhaven? Y- yeah, the YMCA owns okay. it. Uh, I was assessed, you know. Um, I was suicidal at the time, so they sent me to University Hospital just to be checked out mentally. And, you know, um, they said I had mental and emotional problems. 
So they sent me back to Whitehaven, and I was there for two years and one day. Mm, you lived there? Yeah, it, it was a treatment facility. You can live there if you wanted to. It wasn't jail. You can leave anytime you wanted to, but that was my bottom right there, man. And I know it's not easy when you begin to try to get sober. Often we, we slip. You know, the one-day-at-a-time moniker even becomes one hour at a time. Yeah, it, it one, one second, one minute at a time. And it was, it was some very crucial days and time for me. I never had a relapse, thank God. That's and amazing. I just keep in mind what I went through and still to this day to get here, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm always going to be a work in progress, as we all are. But, you know, and I know that now I'm being watched. And I'm being dependent on not just my family, but literally people that's walking past the shop or people that see me inside of stores. It's, yes. it's really funny. So I know I'm being watched and I know that I'm inspiring people. Yes. And and and, and I accept that. It's a responsibility. Yes. Yeah. You're prescient because I planned on asking you later, do you ever think about who you're role modeling for? Who else maybe is looking up to you, either people who know you or people who just observe uh, your story? I know people um, that know my story from what I just told you about as far as recovery. I know people in the business world, small business owners are looking at me. You know, I'm also an instructor at a barber college. And it's it's amazing when we get a new class of students that that come in. Some of them know me, you mm. know, or if, if they don't know me, they know my shop. When they when I say, I, well, you're I, definitely a celebrity in your world. I mean, you're a known person. That's why know, at the beginning I said people try to fabricate being an influencer. You actually truly are an influencer, capital I. And I appreciate that, and I do hear that quite a bit. But I, I'm a regular guy, man. Mm. You know, I'm just accepting the blessings that God continuously gives me mm -hmm. as well as the responsibility that comes with those blessings. You know, I wouldn't trade my worst day today for my best day back then, you mm. know. Powerful. Thank you for that kind of more descriptive opening. Really helpful to understand your story, Waverly. Describe your business today. What's Regardless of the pandemic, like, tell us what you do. And um, Urban Cuts Barbershop is oh, just my elevator speech. Urban Cuts Barbershop is one barbershop in two locations. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. you run you run a couple barbershops. I run a couple barbershops, but more importantly to me, this is what I tell people. I tell people my barbershops are community centers that you can happen to get a haircut at. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that, and and that's how and I, it truly is. I right. see all that goes on there. And, and that's how I birthed the Urban Barber Association because bar people are going to come to barbershops. They've always been gathering places for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So with Decades. that— Decades. Exactly. Well— Even more. Yeah, since, <laughs> since the time of, of the Romans and the Egyptians. The beginning know? of hair. Yeah, you know, they were called Roman bathhouses. You know, sidebar, I guess it's probably fortunate you and I don't have hair. I mean, we have so much charisma. I mean, right. it wouldn't be fair. I mean, It, it would it's, not be We fair. need to be handicapped a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it keeps us humble. <laughs> That's right. Okay, <laughs> so continue. You have two You have two barbershops that are— major focal points of the respective communities. Right. And when I meet with my students, I always challenge them to, to say, what's going to make your business stand apart? And I tell them about what makes my business stand apart. And it's three three different things, Adam. It's professionalism, multiculturalism, and availability. You know, mm. 
professionalism, multiculturalism, and availability. Right. What do you mean by availability? Availability means both my locations are open seven days a week, 365 days a year. Oh, I didn't know that. That's tremendous. Right. And I know you do the fun, like, back-to-school programs. I, I always do the back-to-school Read a haircut. book, we'll give you a free haircut. Yeah. Amazing. All of that stuff, you know, the you know the blood pressure checks, things of that nature. When I leave here today, actually, I'm going to go cut hair at One Love Community Church, mm. practicing with our PPE and all that good stuff, you know. That's tremendous. But it, it's just in my blood to do that type of thing. And I tell them, if you really believe in your whatever it is you do, give it away. And my students always look like, you know, I'm like going through all of this school and all this mess that you instructors are giving us to be giving it away. I said, but the thing is, and if you give it away, people will remember it and they'll tell, go out and tell 10 people about it. And if the service is good, people will support you. And you've seen that uh, I've seen in, your own, in your own career. Yeah. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To Podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long-form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfi, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington, D.C., in New York, and Indianapolis, too. They are a full-service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfi because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfi has agreed to partner with UpTo. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfi. You can find them at C-A-L-F-E-E.com or on the UpTo Foundation website. Welcome back to the UpTo Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Today's guest, Waverly Willis. Do you think the neighborhood barber shop will return to its place uh, now that we are still struggling with COVID? Well, before I answer that, let me say this. I probably get on people's nerves because I'm an incredibly optimistic guy. I love that about you, and I am too. We're we're both glass half full people. Right. When I was in recovery, uh, we had the, when I was in treatment, I should say, we had to meet every day. And one of the treatment facilitators, the RAs, you know, he was a professional and he had been in recovery. And all my statements was always positive. And he says, Waverly, 
you always look at life through those rose-colored lenses. He's an older gentleman. Mm-hmm. Through those rose-colored lenses, <laughs> you know, and he's like, I'm, I'm happy you feel that way now, but it's going to wear off. So I went through treatment. I went there two years. I uh, worked at a barbershop for three years, opened up my shop, but I would always go back to the treatment center. And and I, his name was Larry. He, God rest his soul. Um, I said, Larry, I'm I'm still looking through those rose-colored lenses. He's like, man, I don't know how you're doing it, but I, I guess you are, It's a man. great quality to have. It, it works. So I'm a glasses-half-full type of guy. So I truly wholeheartedly believe that not just the barbershop, but business, we will survive this, yes. people. That's what we do as human beings. We we survive. We're resilient. We're, we're going to be okay. It might take a few years, but we're going to be all right. The mm-hmm. economy's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, some people are going to lose their lives behind this. Mm. Uh, but as a society, as a whole, we will survive this. I was going to ask you, if you could talk to policymakers, what would you recommend they do in terms of you being a small business owner? But now, mid-question here, I'm realizing you do talk to policymakers. You you have the mayor getting haircuts in your shop and right. you've been around senators and the governor. So mm-hmm. do they ever ask your opinion or do you ever give them kind of a, a real entrepreneur's view on what needs to be done or not done? Yeah, um, the mayor and his administration, um, a few senators, they do tap into me because they know that I'm I'm boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so they they do ask for my opinion. Are you able to share at all, like, the types of things you recommend to them, whether it's safety measures or when to open or whatever the topic? Everything that you just said, I've— helped out on on a few committees to safely reopen of barbershops and, and business in general mm-hmm. as far as how, how the phases should go. The team that was put together for the governor, I helped that out. If that's not tricky enough, we're also dealing with race relation issues right now on top yeah. of that. Yeah. How, how do you think about racial equality in 2020? We definitely have a long way to go. But again, I'm a glasses half full type of guy. We've came a long way. And I put up a post right when the protests slash riots was happening. And I was kind of telling them, you know, you know, stop with the violence. And then I put up another post on Facebook saying, do you think the violence was needed? This was after the three officers got arrested. And I stood on my platform as I don't think that we needed the violence. Um, did you did, get reactions to that commentary? Yeah, and and one thing that that I really like about what the the culture that I make at Urban Cuts Barbershop, it's a multicultural shop. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, professionalism, multiculturalism, yeah, one of your three points, and availability. Mm-hmm. So we have black, white, Asian. We have many cultures, uh, races, and lifestyles that come into the shop. So we foster those hard conversations. And they know it's a safe zone. You mm-hmm. know, your opinions, your opinion. Believe You know, I got a lot of Trump supporters that come in. And sometimes I'm refereeing, hey, 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 I got to calm people down mm-hmm. a little bit. That's what's fun about a barber shop. Yeah. You know, in a non-pandemic, non-racial strife situation. I, I used to love going in and hearing whether you're arguing about sports or politics right. yeah. or current events. Right. But but as to what's going on now. These are, these are hotter topics. There's right. a lot of. A lot of heat. Yeah. People came in and they challenged me and they said that 
the violence was necessary in order for those cops, those three officers to get arrested. And they said they started naming several, you know, different cases in the past. And then they came down to Tamir Rice. And he's like, Tamir Rice literally got murdered down the street from your shot wave in your backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, and I didn't know the young man, but I could literally walk to the Cadell wreck. You know, I could be there in five minutes from my shop. Mm. And they said that officer, while he eventually got fired from the Cleveland Police Department, he's an officer in a, in a different area. His family's doing well. They're fine. And this man lost his life, and his mother is still grieving her son's loss and is still touring around to stop police violence. And they said, we tried peacefully protesting through all the people that I, that we mentioned and nothing happened. We talked about it for a week, two weeks. You know, we'll have a memorial ceremony every now and then, let some balloons up, but nothing happened. So they challenged me. They said the violence had to happen to let the powers that be know that it's going to keep going on if you don't arrest those officers. So... I'm kind of on the fence with it now. Well, you know, I, I give you a lot of credit for creating that safe space to communicate. Right. If it's truly a welcome place for diverse ideas, right. which is getting rarer and rarer in right. America and digitally, I give you a lot of credit. I try to create those safe spaces, and right. it's, it's hard to do right. because we need to let the people with the strong views share their views. Right. And it takes a lot of diplomacy. I try to be a better listener. And it's hard to bite your tongue sometimes. Right. But I give you a lot of credit for creating that environment. It's, it's getting harder and harder to do. What I try to do, Adam, is this. I don't care who it is mm -hmm. or what issue it is, whether it's racial, economic, family, whatever. We all have more similarities yes. than there is differences. Absolutely. I got bills. You got bills. Your wife is smarter than you. My wife is smarter than me, you know? <laughs> Definitely. You know? Right, exactly. So it's more similarities with you, me, and uh, an Indian gentleman across the globe mm -hmm, right now. Mm -hmm. We all have families. Worries about our kids or our loved ones. Exactly. Even different faith systems have a lot in common. Right, exactly. Treat others like you want to be treated. Right, exactly. As basic as right. that. Right, right. We all are men. We all are women. We all mm. we all have premature balding. We got you know. <laughs> men, we, it's more similarities. Right. So it's it's this one issue that's divisiveness, and I think that's we need to embrace the fact that that doesn't make you a bad person because you like this person's yes. policy. Hearing you talk about this uh, willingness to hear different points of view and building on similarities, you make it sound so easy. A lot of people don't find it as easy as you do. Right. I wonder where this ease comes from. Do you think maybe it's all that you've had to overcome yourself that you've realized not to kind of sweat the small stuff, so to speak? It definitely comes from that because I've been that guy that got beat up mm. in the street. I've been that guy that got spit on and cussed at, you know? I've been that guy. Mm. I've been on the other side of the fence. I, I was the dude with the cup. Yeah, you've had your low periods. Yeah. What do you think it's going to take for us to get to where we need to be with race relations? It's such a complex topic, but I, I need to speak about it with you because I love our friendship and I love your view on some of these things. This is what I told um, one of my clients. He's a white gentleman. It's easy to stand up for black people 
when all you got is black people in this room right now. I need you to do it amongst your peer group. You know, you, you got to call it out. I, I need someone of another ethnicity to sing my praises when I'm not in the room. Mm. And, and vice versa, when they get to talking about white people. Hey, 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 no, that, that's not right. We need to be advocates for each yeah, other. Yeah, we need to be advocates. I like you know? that. That's a good challenge for me even. So thank you. Yeah. I really do enjoy our friendship, and I feel like uh, you make me a better person. Do you think that there's anyone in your life, like where does forgiveness in your life exist? Have you had to forgive anybody, or have you had to ask anyone close to you to forgive you? Yeah. When I was first in recovery, I had to sit both my daughters down. I had to ask for their forgiveness. And I literally told them, I don't know how to be a father. Mm. And I'm asking <laughs> some seven, eight-year-old kids this. So, like, we got to feel our way around. I need your help. This was part of the 12 steps? Well, yeah, actually it was. I, I mean, at the time, it wasn't saying I got to do my step. It was just part of me being a father. That's tremendous. So you'd want to do that on your own in spite of their youth yeah. to have that heavy conversation. Right, yeah. So I'm sitting inside of my, my church at the time with a seven- and eight-year-old. They're, like, slouching their shoulders, like, all right, well, right. start by taking us to get some ice what cream. What time church over? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> like let's any, get the hell like out of here. Like any seven- and eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you talk about those things now, reflecting back on those important periods yeah. in life now yeah. that you're in a different season with your older children? Absolutely. Absolutely. I talk I'm about sure they're them. proud of you. Yeah. And my greatest aspiration was for my kids to say, I'm proud of my father. Mm. Everything else is, is second to that. Well, I've, I've met, thankfully, a couple of your children, and I can see in their eyes how proud they are of you. Yeah. How, yeah. Many, how many children do you have? Well, biologically, I got two, but I don't believe in step and things of that nature. Uh, my wife has uh, three kids, and so I got five kids mm -hmm. and uh, two nieces and a grandson. So that's eight. And it's a pretty busy uh, household at the Willis residence, right? It's always a fun time at the Willis household, Adam. Is there, <laughs> is there any one individual? I know a lot of people have influences that help catapult them to like new levels of success, whether it's personal or professional success. Is there anyone in your life that you can look back to that really helped you either get out of a rut or take it to the next level? I know you mentioned one sponsor at one point um, in your um, recovery life, but how about either professionally or even personally, someone you've really been able to lean on? Professionally, I'll say two entities. Okay. The Urban League of Greater Cleveland mm -hmm. and Jumpstart, Inc. Okay, let's start with the Urban League. How did they help you? The Urban League helped me because they showed me how important networking is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people say networking now is a bad word. I love networking. It's just a matter of what you do with the networking. Networking, to me, in my, in my opinion, is probably the most important thing that I've ever done. Mm far as business. Mm -hmm. And you know what? And personal. Right. Far as business and personal networking. Yeah, yeah I met and my wife through networking, so to speak, not 
for the purpose of meeting my wife, but through getting to know people. And right. one person leads to the next person. Ex- in our exactly. case, it was a, a Bible study community of Lebanese people. And that's how I met my eventual wife. So yeah. I, that's a form of networking. Yeah, absolutely. Networking professionally and personally has been instrumental for me. So, And how did Jumpstart help you? Jumpstart is a nonprofit that helps uh, entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs here in Cleveland, and um, I think they branched out to some other cities yep. in Ohio. And not just tech entrepreneurs, but also retailers like you and even yep. food entrepreneurs. Um, Jumpstart, they they the tech heads. So the tech heads, in, in, in my opinion, that's what I that's my nickname for them. They they really polished me up. They helped me dot my I's and cross my T's and then business plan. But so does the Urban League, but I go down to both entities and they are a constant resource for me. Marketing plans or budgets. Budgets, all that good stuff. And so those entities helped me out a lot. Wait, now that I think about it, you and I met through Jumpstart, actually. Yeah, we met through Jumpstart. It's in that context we met. Uh, Individually, Mayor Jackson and... For for the record, Mayor Jackson and I are not like best friends, <laughs> like like people think. But the the conversations that I have had with Mayor Jackson have been instrumental. What drew me to Mayor Jackson is people don't know this. Mayor Jackson is a machinist. Hmm. I didn't know that at, at his core. Okay. You know, I mean, he eventually got his law degree. He he went into law school by chance. His wife actually filled out the application for him many years ago. And so he had some very humble beginnings. So Mayor Jackson and um, Dr. Boutros from Metro. Well, you introduced me to the mayor at your wedding. I couldn't believe he was the officiant in your wedding. Yes. That's impressive. Yes. And then uh, Dr. Akram Boutros, a yeah. good Arab-American uh, mm-hmm. healthcare leader. Yep. How has he helped you? You collaborate on some things? Um, well, Metro Hospital, we've done some things with my blood pressure, my health initiatives at my shop, but that was, that was aside from Dr. Boutros. Um, Dr. Boutros has came in and got haircuts a couple of times. Okay. And we got... Just by chance he came in at first. Well, you know, small story. It was a, it was a really nice Range Rover. One morning I opened up early, like I do, mm. and there's a Range Rover sitting outside. I finished my client up. This gentleman walks in. I'm asking him questions. He says, I work at Metro. And he keeps just drilling me with questions about Metro Hospital. How are people viewing Metro Hospital? And I'm like, well, you know what? Now that I think about it, Metro has really come along over the years. And so I stopped and I'm like, okay, who are you? Yeah. Like, like, what do you do at Metro? And he kind of paused and hesitated. And, and he said, uh, I'm the CEO. Good thing you were complimenting his right. institution. Well, I was being honest. Metro, right. over the years, growing up in Cleveland, Metro did not have the greatest reputation. And so I said, so let me get this straight. Like, you're the man at, at Metro. And he hesitated again. He's a really humble guy, mm-hmm. which is one of the things I like about him. He is. Uh, he's like, yeah, I guess you could say that. And I said, well, well, how did you find me? And he said, well, Mayor Jackson sent me over here. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> and so I cut his hair a few more times, and I seen him at a few galas, and, and you know, every now and then I'll request a meeting with him, and he always makes time just to sit down and talk to me for an hour. Wonderful. You know, about life and things of that nature. And mm-hmm. it's important to have those conversations with people that are where you want to be in life, not just business-wise, but he's a good person. Mm -hmm. Mayor Jackson is a good person. Whether you like the way he runs Cleveland or not, 
he's a good person. And that's important to me. It's definitely important. And it's terrific that uh, Dr. Butros gives you that time. Do you think about your own legacy? Are you giving time to others as a part of your kind of long-term vision for what you want to be known for? Um, I recently have started thinking about my legacy, but... I mean, you're still young. Don't get me wrong, but I just wonder someone with your type of influence, if that ever comes to mind. I think, uh, again, just recently I started thinking about my legacy and what, what imprint I want to leave on people when I'm no longer on this earth. Mm-hmm. But that is not what has been driving me. Just- yeah, I know. I know you're trying to be humble here and not be prideful. Uh, David Brooks, one of my favorite thinkers, he writes in the New York Times now, but he gave a TED Talk last, uh, maybe two years ago now, and he talked about two documents, your resume and your eulogy. Mm-hmm. You know, which okay. one are you spending more time working on? And when you think about it that way, if you're right. working more on your eulogy, that's not a bad thing. Right. That's, I'm that's definitely big. working more on my eulogy. Right, right. So what types of things do you think people say now or will say in the future about you? Or what do you hope that they say? Well, I just want them to say, man, you know, Waverly, that was a good dude. Mm. Uh, I'm and, pretty sure that will be said. Yeah. And, and you're always stylish. You got those cool butterfly <laughs> sunglasses. and Yeah, yeah. Always dressed up and you're always... um beating me. I I feel good when I work out in the mornings and I wake up and online, you're already done with your workout by the time I get going at 630 or so. Yeah. You know, and I like to share that with people and I I share my honest emotions when I, when I do it, like, I hate being here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When, when up at in the, the morning. gym. Yeah, at the gym. Or, Not here. You love being here at the I, Up To I Podcast. I love being here at the Up To Podcast, of course. But, you know, people say, man, you like work out here. And, and honestly, during the quarantine time, I severely fell off like everybody else. Mm. And, and I'm human. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the most important thing. People's like, wait, man, you've really got it going on. And look, man, I say, man, I got a ton of bills at home. My kids is going crazy, you know. My car is acting up. My stores aren't open because of COVID. <laughs> right, you know, and I just appreciate the warm regards, but I'm just, I'm a regular person like like everyone else, Well, the man. truth is the authenticity brings people closer to us. Yeah. Not the Range Rovers and right. the exactly. accomplishments, but right. rather the challenges. And that's right. why I wanted to start with your recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction because people— can relate to that more than they can right. the successes. I, I have no doubt about that. I always want people to see the the human in me, mm. you know, mm. just the regular human being with problems. I'm one of them and they are me. I'm them and they're me. You Absolutely. Know? And that's that. What are you most excited about looking ahead, Waverly? I'm looking forward to the day that I can hug you, mm. you know, I like smiling, man. And I'm like... It's contagious you know, around you. I told you when I was a drug addict on the streets, I was very well-groomed. Mm-hmm. And with these doggone masks on, man, I, I'm like, I trim my beard up for you guys today, Adam. But <laughs> like any other day, I'm walking around looking like grizzly. I'm like, yeah. forget it because I no got to wear a mask on anyway. Right. you right. know. And at the shop, I wear a mask and I wear a plastic shield. So... Mm. I can't wait to take the mask off right. and smile at people and hug people and give people some love, man. What gives you the most hope right now? 
Um, like we spoke of earlier, we're resilient. Yes. You know, my rose-colored lenses, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do it. Don't ask me all the technical stuff. Right. I just know that okay. we're going to do it. Well, your optimism alone <laughs> is part of how we're going to do it. And I'm just so optimistic about your future. Yeah. Seeing the drive you've already showed us and then also your resilience. I have no doubt that uh, great things lie ahead for you. I appreciate that. You're an influence to many and you make me a better person. So thank you for, for joining us today, Waverly. It's really been a, a special conversation. It's always a pleasure. Anytime I can do anything for you, Adam, please. Thank you. Boy, Dave, a lot to take in there. I love how Waverly articulates some of these powerful moments in his life and how he's had to overcome them. Some takeaways uh, for us to think about. Number one, his awareness that he's being watched. I thought that was um, impressive. Accepting the responsibility of being a role model for others. I didn't even have to ask him about that. I often ask people about that. Uh, number two, professionalism, multiculturalism, and availability. These are the key tenets of his business philosophy. Number three, I really respect Waverly's efforts to create a safe environment where everyone can feel comfortable expressing their views on the topics of the day. Frankly, we need more places where all viewpoints are truly welcome. Number four, really timely how Waverly spoke of the importance of white Americans to be an advocate for black Americans, even when black Americans are not in the room listening. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. Very helpful. And number five, his emphasis on the fact that he's just a normal guy with the same concerns and problems and goals as everyone else, in spite of the significant influence Waverly has on others. I thought his humanness really came out when he said that. Hey, Adam, the other thing that I wanted to quickly mention is we have so many things in common. We're all going through challenging times, especially right now. And Waverly did a good job to remind us that we have a lot more in common than we Absolutely. have differently. Absolutely. Thank you. Do we have any listener mail today? We always enjoy getting listener mail and text and email messages. Today, one comes anonymously, Dave. I listened to your most recent Up To installment with General Lenderman. And wow, what a podcast that was. Frankly, I could have listened to another hour of her conversation, and it fast became one of my favorites. I don't know if General Lenderman is a writer, but I would enjoy reading a book about her experiences and life lessons learned over her time in the service and in her life. There were so many takeaways, and in particular, I found it interesting how her days are better when started with prayer, and also her thoughts about listening and how important that is. This is particularly true nowadays with all that's going on in the world, and it makes me think of the quote, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What a great life lesson. In any event, well done to both you and more importantly, to General Lenderman. I sure do enjoy the podcast. Wow. That's kind of nice. That was a really fantastic episode. It was really great talking to her. So please continue to give us your feedback. Give us your ideas on topics, on potential speakers or guests, and we will look forward to hearing from you. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.